This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Coloradans will get to participate directly in the presidential race next week. Well, sort of. The March 1st caucuses will actually be different for Republicans and Democrats. Peter Hansen teaches political science at the University of Denver, and he is with us for a caucus primer. And welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. It's good to be here. Let's start with the Democratic side. Voters will choose between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, of course. And that's really where most of the action will be. That's right. Explain why that is on the Democratic side. Sure. Well, the Democrats and the Republicans are handling the caucus differently this year. On the Democratic side, voters will assemble at the precinct level in neighborhood meetings called caucuses. Uh, Their job will be to uh, discuss the presidential race, uh, cast a vote for either Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders. And then the net effect of that will be that the caucus will send a group of delegates forward. Uh, and those delegates will be uh, allocated proportionally to each candidate based on how much of the vote they won. And those uh, delegates will be sworn to a particular candidate, but it's mm-hmm. it's not that they are locked in. They could change their minds uh, by the time they get to the national convention. Is that right? Yes, they could. Um, but at least at this stage of the game, uh, this will be taken as a signal from Colorado voters about which one of the candidates they support. And certainly the national media will interpret it that way. Indeed, as tea leaves. Mm -hmm. And for the Republicans, it's different. And there's not quite the clear headline that emerges, I guess. Yeah, that's right. So uh, the Colorado Republican Party this year decided they would not hold a presidential preference vote at the caucus level. Um, They did that um, because they were reacting to some guidance from the National Republican Party. um, And they uh, felt that if they held a vote in their caucuses, that they would bind uh, their delegates to support that candidate at the national convention, even if that candidate had dropped out by that point. Uh, So there will be no vote uh, for a presidential candidate at the Republican caucus. And there was actually a history of this. The Republican Party made this decision partly because the nominee they picked last time wasn't in the race by the time of the national convention Uh, in 2012. That was Rick Santorum. That's right. So that's one of the reasons they gave for doing this. Uh, You know, my view is that voters really feel that um, they they should have an opportunity to vote for a candidate. And so I think a lot of Republican voters will be disappointed that they're not going to have a chance to vote for a candidate on March 1st. But that isn't to say that the topic of presidential candidates won't come up at the Republican caucuses, correct? Oh, I certainly expect that it will. And my guess is that some of the delegates who stand forward uh, to be elected will um, favor one candidate or the other. And won't be shy, perhaps, about making that known? Absolutely. All right. Uh, We should say that the delegates to the national conventions won't be chosen next week exactly, but it is the first step to choosing those delegates. Explain that to us. Right. So the major purpose of the caucus in both parties is to vote for a group of delegates who will then proceed to county conventions and state and congressional district conventions. um, And from that pool, our national delegates will ultimately be chosen. Caucus goers can also talk about Senate candidates. This would be on the Republican side. Mm-hmm. They can raise any other issue they want. Uh, we spoke with the Republican Party chair in Arapahoe County. That's Joy Hoffman. A caucus is like the old town, New England town meetings in some areas where they have been caucusing together for many, many years. It's almost a social event. And then they'll discuss how they feel about what's going on statewide, locally, and nationally. Then they'll get down to business. In others, it's very businesslike. And boom, we gavel the meeting. 
They do their business. They're out in an hour. And she thinks issues uh, about growth in Arapahoe County will come up and inevitably people will talk about the presidential race. Uh, So these caucuses can vary a lot. Some are held in homes, many in schools, churches. You observed a Republican caucus in 2012. What was that like? Well, it was a really uh, wonderful event to observe. I mean, if if you believe in self-government, a caucus is a beautiful thing. Uh, There were about 30 neighborhood voters who gathered at the local public library. Um, A chair kicked the meeting off, explained everyone what the rules would be. Uh, Voters stood up and they gave speeches on behalf of one presidential candidate or another. Uh, When that was all done, uh, in 2012, of course, there there was an opportunity to vote Mm. for a candidate. And so the voters did that. And um, then they moved on to select the the delegates that would move forward. Did you see anyone swayed by the the speeches that their neighbors gave? Well, it's hard to tell. Um, You know, there were a lot of speeches in favor of Rick Santorum that year. He's the one who won the caucus in our precinct. Um, But, um, you know, ultimately people um, stood up, they spoke their piece, and, and then they cast their vote. Yeah, I can see it as being both a public and a private event. That is Mm -hmm. to say, if your mind is changed, it's not necessarily something you'd profess. I understand you heard of a very different experience at another caucus that same night in Denver. Well, uh, I think the experience that voters have really varies depending on how big the meeting is. So I was at a meeting that was really ideally sized. It was one precinct. It was maybe 30 people. Um, In other cases, many precincts band together. Now, when that happens... Um, There can be a lot of people crowded into one room. It might be hard to hear. Uh, It's a little more intimidating to stand up and speak. And so those experiences aren't quite as nice. The intimacy is some some part of the question here, how intimate it will be and how much it will be like a a huge meeting of hundreds of people. Um, I suppose that differs in part, whether it's a rural or an urban area. Why does Colorado have a caucus and not a primary? Well, we made that decision in 2003. And It was actually a financial decision. Uh, When the state runs a primary election, it costs the state a fair amount of money. The argument was made that caucuses, uh, because they're run by parties, would be more affordable. Um, But, you know, there's another kind of cost to that decision, and that is caucuses are very demanding of people's time. Uh, They take uh, one to two hours. You can't just show up and drop off a ballot. Um, And so for that reason, participation is much lower. We would see much higher turnout in Colorado if we had a primary. They can cost um, the state less, but they can also cost a lot for the county parties at the same time. Is that right? Well, uh, caucuses are very intensive to run. You need a lot of personnel to run them. You need a chair uh, to run every session. So they're quite an organizational challenge. Given that you must dedicate so much time to turn out for a caucus and not just cast a quick vote in a primary, do you see that as a force that makes the caucuses more extreme politically, that those who are truly motivated for a particular candidate are the ones who show up and not necessarily those who are uncommitted or in the middle? Well, certainly you have to be very committed to go to a caucus. And and again, that's because it takes a lot of time. There are people who work in the evening. You know, there are parents with small kids who are putting their their kids to bed in the evening. It's an inconvenient time to go and it it takes a lot of time. And so the, the ones who show up are true believers. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with University of Denver political scientist Peter Hansen. He's giving us something of a caucus 101 ahead of next week's caucuses in Colorado. What kind of turnout are you expecting? 
Well, that's a great question. I think on the Democratic side, we'll see substantial turnout that because there's a there's a contested race and voters will, are going to have an opportunity to vote for either Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders. On the Republican side, because voters will not have an opportunity to vote for a presidential candidate, I think there's a good chance turnout will be much lower. On the Democratic side, we talked with the chair of the Boulder County Democratic Party. That's Laura Lee Hullinghorst, uh, who said she expects turnout, uh, at least in her county, to be at least what it was in 2008. And that was record breaking then. And turnout will be affected by the rules as well in Colorado. Hullinghorst told us that she's gotten calls from a lot of confused potential caucusers. We do not have in Colorado same-day registration for the caucus. And I think that's incredibly confusing to people when they saw same-day registration in Iowa and they're about to see it in Nevada. And we, of course, have same-day registration for general elections, but we don't have it for caucus. So what should people know about who can and cannot participate on caucus night? Well, this is very important. Um, So in order to participate in a caucus, you have to be a registered Democrat or a registered Republican, and you have to have registered with the party as of January 4th. Um, So you can't do it in the next few days and expect to be able to participate. In addition, you have to have lived in your precinct for 30 days. You have to have been registered to vote at that address for 29 days. Um, And you have to be present. So um, this is not like a regular election where you can register at the last minute and show up at the polls and vote. No proxies. And uh, the events start at 7 o'clock on March 1st, correct? That's right. All right. Thank you so much for being with us. I'm so happy to be here. Peter Hansen teaches political science at the University of Denver. We'll have a caucus primer at our website if you still have questions, cprnews.org. Tomorrow, we'll talk about whether Colorado should have been the first caucus state before Iowa and New Hampshire and whether the caucus itself is a good idea. We'll wrestle with those ideas tomorrow. We'll be right back with a report card on Colorado's health. This is CPR News. Vote for Mr. Rissom. Raise up your voice and vote for Mr. Rissom, the people's voice. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A new health report card gives Colorado good grades when it comes to health insurance coverage and physically active seniors. But there are areas that need improvement, according to the Colorado Health Foundation, like immunization rates and child poverty. CPR's health reporter John Daly speaks with Joanne Allen. First, let's talk about this year's grades. What does the report card show? Well, Joanne, we're doing pretty well. The report ranks Colorado versus other states in 38 categories over five life stages. For babies and children, it gives the state a C plus. For adolescent health, Colorado gets a B. And the state gets B pluses for adults and seniors. So overall, Colorado ranks just about in the middle, maybe upper middle of the 50 states in most categories. But the report says that Colorado has made strides in the number of people with health insurance, right? Well, that's right. The report card has tracked this issue for a decade. We had a big expansion of health coverage through Obamacare and the expansion of Medicaid. And we've seen an increase in the numbers of people, kids and adults, with coverage. I spoke with Kyle Legleiter. He's the policy director at the Colorado Health Foundation, which put out the report. With more Coloradans insured, we're seeing more Coloradans having access to a medical home, having a personal relationship with a healthcare provider. And one of the most promising things that we track in our Healthy Beginnings category of the health report card is the number of mothers-to-be who receive timely prenatal care before they deliver their babies. 
Obviously, good prenatal care gives babies a better start. In that category, Colorado cracked the top 10, going from 27th two years ago to 6th this year. So that's a big win. John, teen pregnancy has also fallen in Colorado. Yes, the report cites a health department initiative to prevent unplanned pregnancies and offering some effective contraceptive options. Colorado's teen birth rate is now at a record low. It's been cut in half over the last decade. Colorado always gets high marks, even best in the country, for how physically active our adults are. The report finds that that is still the case. That's right. Our seniors do very well compared to the rest of the country for that. The report finds three out of four seniors were physically active in the past 30 days. That landed us number one in the country in that category. But there's a troubling trend Colorado and pretty much every other state needs to worry about, and that's packing on pounds in general. Again, here's Kyle Leglider with the Health Foundation. I think what's concerning, though, is if you look at the actual rate of obesity for adults in Colorado today and compare it with where other states were 10 years ago, we would be one of the most obese states in the country 10 years ago with the obesity rate that we have as the leanest state today. And here's another thing to worry about. Colorado children didn't do as well in that physical activity category, ranking right in the middle, 24th. Only about two-thirds of children participated in vigorous physical activity for four more days a week. Speaking of major health challenges, Colorado typically is one of the states struggling with its immunization rates. This report documents that once again. That's right. One of those health indicators the report tracks, and this is a major one, is immunizations. Do babies get all their recommended immunizations? The report found that number has dropped to about 74 percent in 2016. That's down six percentage points from a decade ago, and that lands us right in the middle of states at 25th. This report also points to child poverty as a problem. It's a persistent challenge. The number of children and adolescents living in poverty has gone from about 14 percent to about 20 percent in Colorado over the past decade. The Health Foundation's Kyle Leglider says that has an impact on health virtually across the board. The stress on those families and the opportunities that they have for healthy, nutritious food, physical activity opportunities, going to see the doctor in a timely way, all of those things can sort of set those children up for a, a lower health trajectory than they might have otherwise. So all in all, I think this health report card shows a mixed bag for Colorado, some bright spots, some challenges, where the state has dedicated resources like the Medicaid expansion and the teen pregnancy initiative. There have been some improvements. The state's budget is tight again this year, though, which definitely will have an impact on how aggressively Colorado can attack these areas that have been persistently hard to solve. CPR's Joanne Allen speaking with our health reporter, John Daly. The Colorado Symphony's music director, Andrew Litton, has had a wish since he took the job in 2013, and that's to share the orchestra's performances with the world through recordings. Well, the symphony has just released a disc that explores some of the beloved ballet music by the American composer Aaron Copland. Andrew Litton, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So as we said, you wanted to get the symphony on record. 
How happy were you when you finished the new Copeland disc? Well, I was thrilled, and I think the orchestra was both shocked and thrilled themselves because uh, we recorded this for the Swedish label BIS, B-I-S, that I'd been working with in Bergen, Norway, where I'd been music director for the last 12 years. Um, I started actually working with the label about 13 years ago because we made a recording before it even started. And I was it was a very different experience. I've now got about 120 CDs under my belt. But the way this this operates is they really micromanage. So um, many, many takes for the same measure, but to get things that are absolutely, you know, precise and balanced. And it's incredible. So you come out of those sessions feeling like you've had a complete and total, you know, physical <laughs> every 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 nook and cranny explore, explored, but uh, it's it's a the results speak for themselves. I mean, the results are extraordinary, and the bottom line is the orchestra did play it that way, you know, at some point. And how did the musicians feel about that really exacting recording process? Like I say, I think they felt exhausted but exhilarated because they they did it. You know, there wasn't a single moment where we went, oh well, I guess that's good enough. You know, this was really a, always a <laughs> case of wow, this is incredible. And I need to also point out that unusually. We did this, it's called Rehearse Record. We hadn't actually performed these pieces first. One, ideally, one does perform the pieces, then go into the studio. Oh, wow. But we didn't have that opportunity and the luxury of time. And I wanted to get this, this ball rolling because part of building a reputation of an orchestra is having product. And I wanted to make sure we got this going early on in my tenure. I mean, it's interesting because given the state of the record industry, um, releasing a CD can't be a huge revenue source for a CD symphony. Uh, but what, what does it do for an orchestra's reputation then? It, it actually just increases the awareness of the orchestra. There isn't a single classical disc that will ever make its, its players money. That's just not the reason to do them. Yeah, it's kind of a vanity project, but it's also a chance for the orchestra, like I said, to be heard far and wide. And so far, we've had amazing reviews on many British publications. The French, uh, the top French record magazine, Diapason, just gave us five tuning forks, which is their top rating. Um, Germany, they're talking about it in Germany, and I'm sure there will be stuff in Japan as well, which is a huge record, classical record market. So these are all publications that have never said Colorado Symphony probably before in their history, and suddenly they're writing about us in, in, on their, in their print, which I think is very important for the orchestra. So when you release a disc, it's very much with a global audience in mind. You know, most Copeland fans know the orchestral suite versions, basically the condensed versions, you know, better than the full ballets. What do listeners discover when they hear the full ballets of Rodeo, for instance, and um, Billy the Kid, as you've recorded them? Well, I think what's fascinating about all this stuff is that a lot of good music invariably winds up on the cutting room floor when you make a suite. And in the case, especially of Billy the Kid, there's some stunning music that just, I was so happy to discover. I had never done the full ballet before. And, and in, in Rodeo, there's of course a very fun honky tonk piano part that I played, um, for the recording. And that you, you never get to hear normally. So that was also a fun experience. We'll hear that in just a moment. But first, let's hear from Billy in the Desert from Billy the Kid. Gorgeous and really 
representative of how diverse this ballet is, I think. Yes. And, you know, what's interesting is he really created single-handedly, this is Aaron Copeland, created the sound of the West. You know, we always, you listen to this music and you realize this could be in any cowboy film. Uh, but it, right. of course, wasn't written for film. Uh, people stole the, this method of of writing, which involves a lot of major chords, intervals of the fifth, for example, um, and and it just it's literally the sound of of out here. And I, that's why the record company was so interested in the first recording with the Colorado Symphony that it be something that would be completely and immediately identified with us. Even though uh, your listeners that are loyal fans will know we did a pretty darn good job of Mahler's Second Symphony that has nothing to do. With <laughs> the, the the West of America uh, just this last weekend. Um, that's the nature of the beast of a great orchestra. You were supposed to play all sorts of music in all sorts of from all sorts of different countries without an accent. Um, but of course, it's very natural for us to to record the music of Copeland. And it was what, as I mentioned earlier, the chance to record these extra moments from Billy the Kid and Rodeo was really fun. None of us knew them. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are talking about new discs out from the Colorado Symphony, and the music director, Andrew Litton, joins us. I have to hear you on honky-tonk piano (laughs) on this uh, record. Let's Let's just dive in. So that is Ranch House Party from Copeland's Ballet Rodeo. And that is Andrew Litton on Honky Tonk Piano. You have released two discs with the Colorado Symphony in the past year. And this is just as your time with the symphony begins to wind down. You are becoming music director of the New York City Ballet. Is that bittersweet? Yes, very bittersweet. Um, and I've actually already started at the New York City Ballet. Um, I've had, I started in, in the uh, middle of January and had to master 14 ballets in two weeks. It was quite hairy. Oh, but, wow. Yeah, you know, I, I, I dove in with both feet, I guess. But um, uh, it's very bittersweet because I love the Colorado Symphony and it's been a joy to work with them. It will carry on, of course. I'm, I'm staying as principal guest conductor, artistic advisor, four weeks of uh, season for the next two years after this. Um, and it's just an orchestra that never ceases to amaze me at how great it is. I mean, it sounds maybe a little, uh, I don't know, mawkish to say something like that, but it's astonishing how um, an orchestra that doesn't have the international reputation of, say, well, in New York Philharmonic or the Chicago Symphony can actually play on a good night every bit as well. And it's just thrilling for me to work with these great musicians. It sounds like that might have been a surprise to you coming here. Yeah, but it's sort of been the nature of the beast with me. I, I, as I mentioned earlier, spent 12 years as music director of the Bergen Philharmonic in Norway. And the first time I showed there up there to guest conduct four years prior to my appointment, I thought, is my career so bad that I'm in this godforsaken outpost, <laughs> outpost on the west of Norway? <laughs> and then I conducted them for the first time and I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. You know, And it's, it was the same with the CSO the first time I worked with them. I just thought, what is this great orchestra doing here? You know, And that's why when I sign on, I try very hard to 
also bring my experience with how to raise an orchestra's reputation. And in the case of Bergen, that certainly worked. The orchestra's recorded over 100 albums and videos in the last 12 years and many, many international tours. And in Colorado, it's it's been a little bit of a slower process here in Denver, but at least we have this recording and, and the earlier one for Hyperion to show the excellence of the orchestra in an international market. You also have a new disc of horn trios. You play piano on the disc with the Colorado Symphony's lead violinist and principal horn player. Um, is that more intimate setting, that more intimate music, satisfying in a way that conducting a, a full orchestra is not? Uh, they're very different disciplines. For me, I keep the piano up as a as a performer to remind myself of how difficult it is to actually make the noise. You know, when you're a conductor, you stand up on a box and wave your arms in a sort of specified <laughs> manner and out come sounds, but you're not actually playing anything. And metaphorically, you're playing an orchestra, but you're not actually touching anything. And to actually sit down at a piano and be responsible for the sound and the notes in the right place at the right time, that's a challenge, and especially when you don't do it day in and day out. So I always try and find myself opportunities throughout the year to play. Uh, not only does it force me back into that discipline, but it also, in the case of chamber music, gives me a chance to work with friends on a much more intimate basis than standing up on a box and saying, hey, Mike, could you try it this way? You know, instead, we're we're actually sitting together in a little group, you know, you, me, Mike, and myself, and talking things through as equals. And that small group included Daniel Kellogg, who's a composer based in Boulder. Why don't we play a little something from the album? Oh, lovely. That horn is so plaintive there. I want to go back to your your new gig uh, with the New York City Ballet. Um, you have scaled back your presence with the Colorado Symphony as a result. What do you love about conducting ballet? Well, I'm, it's, it's a new experience for me. I've been conducting orchestras, symphony orchestras, for 34 years. And the chance to actually work with the world's greatest ballet company um, and look up at that stage and see this perfection, visual perfection, and realize that you have to get the music to go as perfectly in sync with them as humanly possible. That's been a great challenge for the last few weeks and also will continue. Uh, next week, I'm actually in Washington, D.C., working with the Kennedy Center Orchestra, but with the New York City Ballet. So I have to train a whole new orchestra on, on these ballet programs. Um, I love theater. I love the looking up at the curtain, waiting for it to open. And, uh, you know, specifically, maybe even more, I love opera. But that opportunity to, to be music director of an opera company hasn't come up. But when this opportunity presented itself, I was actually really quite excited because very early on in my, my life, as a matter of fact, my very first professional engagement ever was playing piano solo when I was 18 for Rudolf Nureyev on Broadway. And so my career actually began in ballet, as it were, or playing huh. for ballet. Of course, anybody who sees me knows it never was in ballet. <laughs> <laughs> I think I know the answer to this, but you do not see the dancers when you are conducting uh, musicians for a ballet. You're paying attention to 
the musicians, correct? No, actually, I pride myself now in trying to learn how to actually accompany and see when the dancer probably wants it a little faster, a little slower. Oh, I'm starting wow. to be able to tell, which is great, you know, because as I have said in uh, in media before this, it's a very fast learning curve for somebody like me. You have to understand for 34 years, I've been taking oral cues. You know, yeah. when you listen to a soloist and they so want to play faster, want to play slower, you adapt, you adjust quickly. Well, with dancers, it's visual. And this, we're doing this new ballet um, by Justin Peck. He's the choreographer and the music's by Bryce Dessner of the National Rock Group. Mm. And um, eight, I have to take eight cues from the dancers. So they run, they jump, they do an arabesque, then they land, and you, that's when the music starts. It's totally new. It's totally new for me. But it's actually really a lot of fun. It's a fun challenge. Well, uh, this is your final season as music director of the Colorado Symphony. Uh, as you said, you'll be principal guest conductor next season. In short, what do you want fans of the symphony to say when, when they look back at the Lytton years? Well, I'd like them to say that the musical results were really satisfying, um, that it was a time when uh, we began to actually turn the fortunes of the orchestra around financially, um, and that actually that people coming to Betcher Concert Hall were co- continuously hearing the orchestra on a higher and higher level, and I think the sky's the limit with this orchestra. They are so brilliant, and they just need somebody who who loves them as much as I do. And of course, there were many performances outside of Betcher as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, part of the outreach for the Colorado Symphony. Uh, Andrew Lytton, thanks for speaking with us. My pleasure. And why don't we hear a little bit more from the Copeland disc? Um, this is the introduction to the ballet, Billy the Kid. Andrew Litton conducts the Colorado Symphony on a new disc of Aaron Copeland music, including Billy the Kid and Rodeo. He's also featured on a new disc of chamber music written and inspired by Brahms. Details at cprnews.org. And we'll be right back with the ultimate survivor. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Imagine getting dropped in the wilderness and having to stay alive with only the clothes on your back. That's what survival expert Kat Bigney and archaeologist Bill Schindler did for the National Geographic Channel on a new show called The Great Human Race. Humans walk the earth today for one reason. We are survivors. For millions of years, we fought for our very existence. We transformed rocks into tools, sticks into weapons, and friction into fire, enabling us to spread across the planet. We endured droughts, impossible terrain, and ice ages to not only survive, but to thrive. Could we do it again? The show follows Bigney and Schindler as they travel the ancient route that eventually brought humans from Africa to North America. They lived as our ancestors did millions of years ago. Bigney says growing up in the Rocky Mountain West helped her prepare for all of this. And a cat welcome to the program. Hi. Hi. Well, we Thanks for having me. I'm so glad to have you on the program. We know you survived because you're here with us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You, you and Bill Schindler could use only the tools that were available during 
you know, the given time period you were recreating. So in the first episode, set 2.4 million years ago in the East African savannah, the two of you find an animal carcass. And (laughs) tell us what you did with it. Oh, man. So here's what you have to know beforehand is that, you know, both Bill and I were incredibly hungry before we happened upon this carcass. So there wasn't a lot of planning um, our approach. We were a little concerned about predators, but we were hungry. So we wanted to obtain any food that we could from it. So, you know, it was it was a fresh um, it was a fresh kill. It was still bleeding. We consumed some of the blood. We took uh, some of the longer bones or a longer bone and ate the marrow. And, you know, we did eat some some raw meat that was still um, sheathed in some of um, <clears throat> um, some skin. So it wasn't necessarily exposed to flies. But, yeah, we uh, dove right in. But that's very similar to what, you know, Homo habilis would have done in a similar situation, which, you know, we were representing Homo habilis in that time period. It was incredibly difficult because, you know, we live in in, in the modern era and uh, we know how to make fire using minimal resources. We know how to, a lot, to do a lot of things using the natural environment, but representing Homo habilis 2. you know, 4 to 6 million years ago, we didn't have the ability, we couldn't make fire, even though we had the knowledge and the skill set to do it. And we couldn't really fashion weapons because it wasn't part of the this project and this game that we bought into. So, oh my gosh, incredibly difficult. Yeah, you had to live within these constraints. And this is the way of teaching the viewer in a very vivid way when you're eating from a carcass. Uh, how our ancestors lived. And Homo habilis is is where you start. This is a a (laughs) tree-dwelling version of us now, correct? Yeah, absolutely. So we did. We started, uh, you know, a couple million million years ago as Homo habilis and then progressed and became Homo erectus and then modern Homo sapiens. So um, while we're following uh, time in a linear fashion and representing a migratory pathway, this doesn't uh, accomplish sort of the representation of of all of the events in history. It really um, has been a pretty amazing and impossible project because you know, I'm I'm expected to live in, in these crazy conditions and and to survive and use you know my knowledge and skill set to survive. But I'm, I also have to represent history and the time period. So if I'm in you know Tanzania representing uh, Homo habilis, I have a checklist of things that I need to accomplish, and I'm going through this, and I've done you know all my research and home homework to make sure that I'm representing the time period as much as possible. And also trying to contribute while making while making this a compelling television show, trying to also contribute to the academic world and to fill in some of the gaps in the archaeological record and things that you know we don't have um, a complete archaeological, um, I guess, artifact set for that time period. We have stone tools and, and a few things, but we're you know we really we're attempting to understand our roots, to understand uh, gr- the greater aspect of humanity and, and where we came from. It was a, it was incredibly challenging, impossible in some ways, but uh, and, and hunger was yeah, not a very hard project. Hunger was not uh, your only nemesis. Uh, let's hear about one of your other early challenges. My mouth is so dry. We need to go find water. My legs cramped up a couple times, which isn't a big deal, but they cramped up for like half an hour. If there's any chance of us finding a large body of water, we need to find something to drink now. So you think it's a good idea we should split up? We can cover more ground that way. Yes. Let's let's go. <sighs> I'm dying for water. My mouth is dry. I'm dizzy, cramping up. 
starting to feel the effects of early stages of dehydration. You do not find a giant body of water. Boy, that would have been nice. Where do you find water? <laughs> uh, so initially from tubers in the ground. So from these these root vegetables that contain um, uh, a large amount of water. And the thing about them is they have sort of fibrous properties. I think that they're they're associated with sort of the caloric content and size and water content of an apple. But in reality, you gain more water than you do digestible pulp because some of the fibers are indigestible. So you really are gaining quite a bit of moisture out of them. And the indigenous people of the area, the Hadza, um, can exist just off of these tubers for days. Um, I think that they have some pretty special adaptations, though, because um, I was still pretty thirsty even with uh, even with the tubers that I found. They help, though. You talk about how difficult it is to live as homo habilis, this early version of people. Do you think that, that that's what would have been racing through their minds, how hard my life is? Or do you think you only, <laughs> you only come at that perspective because you have something else to compare it to? Oh, no. I mean, it's all relative. I mean, you know, you talk to someone today and their life is difficult because they, they didn't get their coffee in the morning. So I think, you know, it's it, difficult is relative. So, I mean, it, and it probably would vary from one individual to another. Um, but if, if if your way of life, you know, is if, if you are sustaining your life, you know, from from hand to mouth, day to day, avoiding predators, looking for. Um, you know, food where you can find it and scavenging, that's, that's just something that you normalize. It's, it's, it's part of, um, part of your culture, part of your existence. You might feel bad for yourself if you have a horrible hunt or if maybe like, you know, your, your neighboring homo habilis finds better tubers than you do or something, but it's really part of life. I think that, uh, that we, I also wonder whether or not we – what cognitive level we were at and how we were processing our situation. We obviously had some complexity in our cognition because we were adapting. We were modifying our behaviors to match the environments. And this is one trait sort of quintessential to, I think, the human race and especially after experiencing this project. But I wouldn't necessarily say that, you know, that we felt – I mean, hey, in like, you know, a couple hundred years we might feel bad. We might look back and say, oh, my gosh, it was it was horrible in 2016. We had to walk everywhere. We had to use our legs and now we just teleport or whatever. So it, it really is all relative. Um, and, and, you know, the, the beauty of this project is that I was totally embedded in it. So some some days were difficult, but other days I was so, I think – captivated by the surroundings and the experience and had bought in so fully to being homo habilis or homo erectus that it wasn't like it was difficult and I compared it to another life. It was just part of the process. It was just an environment that I was in and I accepted the dehydration, the hunger, the thirst and the cold for what they were. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with survival expert Kat Bigney, who's featured in a new program from National Geographic called The Great Human Race. And she and um, her companion, who is uh, an archaeologist, travel the ancient route that brought humans from Africa to North America. They live as earlier iterations of humans, Homo habilis, as we've heard, and then Homo erectus. We're going to talk about how her time in the West as a child formed her sense of the world and prepared her for this incredible challenge after a break. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 
You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Let's return to my conversation with survival expert Kat Bigney, who is on the new National Geographic Channel program, The Great Human Race. She lived as our early ancestors did and retraced the ancient route that brought humans from Africa to North America. And uh, Kat, you described yourself today as nomadic, uh, you know, moving from place to place, a little like our ancient ancestors. Uh, but you grew up in the, in the mountains and deserts of the Rocky Mountain West. You still teach and do archaeological research here. How did life in the West help you during the TV project? Oh, here's what I have to say. It's it, it absolutely made this project possible for me. It didn't um, only help me. I think it gave me um, the background, the knowledge, and the experience to be able to do it. So to, I think the episode that airs tonight is our big desert episode. And we're, um, we're experiencing some pretty extreme um, conditions in this environment. But having spent time in the Four Corners area in, in the high desert um, – I I think that I was prepared for it. I understood what it meant to be thirsty. I understood what it meant to be hot. And I, in this, you know, from this experience was able to determine when I was going from sort of that, like, I'm uncomfortable all the time, hot and dehydrated level to, oh my gosh, like, (laughs) I'm in trouble. So, uh, and I, and I wouldn't have that ability unless I, unless I had the experience in the Four Corners area and in the high desert here, which is such a unique and amazing environment. Like, not only is it significant in terms of, you know, archaeology, because everything is preserved in this environment, but also for, for me personally, it gave me uh, fodder to approach the great human race and to be able to endure the desert and know that as uncomfortable as I was, and I'm telling you, like the temperature reached 130 degrees at one point, it was extreme. And if I hadn't spent the time and been as dehydrated as I have been in the high deserts of this uh, area, uh, the Four Corners area, I don't think I would have been able to mentally push through and to understand that my body and trust that my body was capable of doing it. Where do you, also, uh, where I'm do you, sorry? where do you find water in the desert? <laughs> Nowhere. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> you know, it depends on the desert. There are a few tricks. You can you can follow animal trails. You can look for natural um, natural reservoirs, natural pockets in some of in some of sandstone. There's certain sandstone like Aeolian or windblown sandstone that um, is semi permeable, so it will hold rainwater for a period of time. Um, there are areas usually in the morning before the water is, um, utilized by the plants and, and, and taken up from the ground, the water table is a little higher. So you can climb to high points, look out across the landscape and see if you can see any of the early sun's reflection on water where you won't see water necessarily throughout the day because the, the plants, the plants in the area will consume it. And then through the night, through evapotranspiration and the release of the water, it will return to the ground. But you, you have to really utilize, um, the, the rhythms in nature understand where the insects are going, understand where the animals are going and pay attention, pay attention to differences, subtle differences in vegetation, different colors of green. And sometimes it's a little bit intuitive. And sometimes you just have to convince yourself that you can make it another step while being dehydrated. (laughs) If things got really, really bad, would the film crew have intervened? I'm sure they wouldn't have let us die, but they, they were pretty excited that um, I was willing to push like I was and um, make this as raw as, as possible. And I feel comfortable pushing myself 
um, pretty far, pretty close to that red line because of my experience. Um, and, and, you know, it's not just the desert in the Rocky Mountains, too. Like, I'm sure you know how cold yeah. the winters are and how extreme they can be. And you'll have to head to that territory as well <laughs> in, the, in, this great, yes. in this great human race uh, when you'll probably yes. be craving 130 degrees. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't think that I th- we, we do. We absolutely do um, head into some really cold environments. We have to we have to represent the Ice Age. So that means that I've got to, you know, go through these extreme experiences and sleep in the snow and uh, having the confidence from from my upbringing, not even professionally, you know, in the survival run, but also personally growing up as a little girl and in the Rocky Mountains experiencing winters that we were, you know, 30 below zero. And uh, knowing what that feels like, knowing that you can be cold for a very long time and be okay. And, and the difference between discomfort and, and danger and that fine line that, you know, that I've walked several times in my life and in this project. And having both extremes, the extreme cold of the Rocky Mountains, yet the, the heat and the dehydration of the high desert really set me up to be able to travel to anywhere on the globe and you know to handle it. So uh, did, did you come I, home I, with I, uh, any scars, though? <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> okay. Um. Any time I think I made a stone tool, I, I, I was bleeding. Um. But that was just good. Uh. Good feedback that the tool would be effective. Um. <laughs> and, sharp you enough. know, <laughs> I'm like, oh, good job. I got cut. This means it'll work. Um. But also, you know, scars in terms of, oh, parasites and worms. I'm not going to lie. I, I've been pretty sick on and off. And um, uh, I had a flesh-eating bacteria and on my face at one point And just so many things that you pick up along the way, especially when your body's stressed, you're immunocompromised because you're, you know, you're not eating properly, you're not sleeping, you're too hot or too cold. So uh, <laughs> that's okay because, you know what, really, I, yes, there were scars obtained for this project. But I think every year I probably add, like, 20 new scars just because of my way of life. So there, yeah, this was an extreme project for sure. And and this is a a smarter version, I think, of some of the survival shows because there's so much you wind up learning about our ancestors, um, their brain development, what tools they did and didn't have, at what point is fire introduced, for example. But it does seem that it's tapping into something, this this fascination with how we used to live and returning to it in some regard. What do you think that's about? Um, so this actually is one of the biggest reasons I <clears throat> I decided to be involved in this project. I, I think that there's so much that we can learn about ourselves and our current situation by looking in, in the past and by understanding that right now, you know, if you were to look at a timeline and a visual representation of that, um, our experience right now in, in, in our civilization with the infrastructure we have is only a small spot on this lengthy line of our existence. And understanding that what we have in our DNA, what's encoded in our DNA, and what really represents um, what it means to be human is so much more than our jobs or, or our, 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 our you know, socioeconomic status or our culture, religion, or politics. It's so much bigger than that. What it took for us to survive is still encoded in our DNA, even though most people would think it is extreme to go out into the natural world and to live. This is how we have existed for the majority of, of our time on this planet mm. as, as, as a species. 
and understanding that regardless of you know whether or not we're we're, we're using you know an uh, old uh, a Shulian hand axe made from a rock and a stick as our tools or you know or, or we're talking on a cell phone like the same innovations that have existed throughout time are part of our DNA and this this gives us hope to solve problems you know global warming or or warfare these other issues the the solutions are internal and we have that ability and we we have perfect examples of it in the past and that is so human to do whatever is necessary to survive to change our you know we actually ch- changed who we were we went from being you know these omnivores that were sort of scavengers to being predators we changed what we were to survive Thank and you that's so incredible much. Incredible to me. Thanks so much for being with us, Kat. Thank you. It sounds like an exhausting but meaningful experience. That survival expert, Kat Bigney, she's on the Great Human Race, a new TV show from the National Geographic Channel. You can hear our conversation from last week with a Colorado man who runs a primitive survival school at CPRnews.org. I'm Ryan Warner. <laughs> 